Welcome to Planttopia. I'm your host, David Godori, and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Planttopia. The most reliable timing mechanism on the planet is sunrise and sunset. Microbial plant pathogens have developed over millions of years in endless natural cycles of light and darkness, sunrise and sunset. In today's episode, we're going to learn how we can take that finely tuned and co-evolved relationship and turn it against both pathogens and certain arthropod pests. We can selectively, like a scalpel, remove the pathogen while uh, keeping the patient alive. Relatively low doses of ultraviolet that is uh, lethal to the pathogen. Precise treatment with no residue. We can save at least 80% uh, of the, the fungicides that we would normally use. But not only that, it tends to seem to build a resistance uh, to future infection. We're talking about a brighter future as we turn to photobiology for answers on how to produce healthier crops. That's today on Plantopia. I foresee a day when uh, there'll be tractors running UV out through the fields at night. Uh, The robotics will take over and, and do the proper dosing it's a very exciting uh, to, to see how this technology now is uh, becoming used in practice. I think this is an exciting time. Hi, I'm Arne Stensvand, uh, plant pathologist from Norway. I'm Mark Ray. I am at the Lighting Research Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Tell me about Suta. Well, Suta, or Arupalai Sutabaran, he came as a student from uh, Sri Lanka. Um, he did his uh, master's on vegetables, and then he um, was hired as a PhD student working on um, powdery mildew in uh, roses. So he found something really interesting on rose powdery mildew. People are familiar with roses, of course. Everyone thinks about them around Valentine's Day. Uh, But they're one of a few crops that grow really well with nearly continuous lighting, almost 24 hours a day. But what did that do to the mildew? Well, that was when we started to get interested in this uh, because... um, and a colleague of mine, um, uh, a professor in the hot science department, he, they, they found that if you grew uh, roses at, uh, in 24 hours daylight, there was much less powdery mildew than if you grew them at the more regular uh, 16 to 18 hours. And it's not just because the powdery mildew that the plant is outgrowing the powdery mildew, it has a direct effect on the on the pathogen. Yes. So so this day the day length had a direct effect. 
So these pathogens have some kind of a clock where they can tell time. What, what are we doing? Are we keeping the pathogen up too late? It's not getting enough sleep. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What's going on? Why, yeah. why does it stop? Why does it stop growing? That's uh, it, it. There, there are circadian rhythms, um, and there's also um, so there's genes uh, that are running this thing, and uh, so that that's uh, what uh, that's what he found when he was working on this because he saw this that this balance between red and darker red uh, light, uh, uh, then then he understood that uh, the the, the pathogens uh, had uh, the same um, sensing mechanisms of light that uh, plants uh, have. So uh, it's kind of the same rhythm that the plants and animals and fungi have. So Mark, you're, you're an expert on circadian biology uh, in, in a variety of biological systems. Can you explain why these genetically controlled traits are so widespread in the animal and plant kingdom and what we can do to exploit them? Well, the the most reliable timing mechanism on the planet is sunrise and sunset. Um, And what um, to exploit various niches, whether you're nocturnal or muscular or diurnal, your physiology and behavior has to be coordinated with uh, sunrise, sunset, and also, I should point out, also with uh, seasonal changes. Uh, so a lot of uh, plants and animals are driven by photoperiod. The longer the day sends a message that it's time to flower or time to reproduce, whatever that may be. So you have these um, clocks in each cell that they are self-regulating. If you put them in total darkness, they will continue to cycle. Sunrise and sunset will synchronize us socially so that we're all on the same time mechanism and we have to do that every day. And if you put people in a cave like uh, the miners that were in, uh, I guess it was Chile a few years ago, they all ran asynchronous. So some were sleeping, some were awake, and it was really disruptive uh, from uh, the social interactions trying to stay alive because people were hungry at different times and uh, so on. So this strong light-dark pattern is critical, not just to humans, which I've primarily studied, but plants as well. Um, and for example, um, plant defenses are synchronized with um, the solar day so that when a pathogen or a pest is going to come along, say, and it primarily wants to devour the plant uh, in the morning, uh, it will build those defenses in anticipation, not in response to the light, but in anticipation that that pest is going to show up uh, at some particular time. And that's how it has survived, by building in those defenses. If you mess that up, you put the plant on jet lag, if you gave you know, three hours of light here and then extend it for eight hours and then give it something else altogether, its defenses would be reduced and would be more uh, susceptible to predation. So this whole biology of clocks is one of the most, is the most, in my opinion, the, the, the most fundamental 
highly conserved characteristic uh, from single cells all the way up to complex uh, animals. I just want to make one other point that um, is worth noting. Um, if you harvest lettuce or whatever it is you're doing and you maintain a light dark pattern from where it was raised, not the ones that come from California to the East Coast, but local vegetables, you can keep them fresh just by turning the lights on and off in synchrony with the exist where where it was harvested. And that'll maintain it for three or four days and apparently is just as effective as freshness as refrigeration. So there's another opportunity there to begin to think about how do we use light uh, to maintain freshness uh, on plants that are going to be consumed at the grocery store. So this whole clock mechanism, I think, is, is, is completely um, underdeveloped from a research and application point of view in, in horticulture and Best management. Hey, David, why don't you ask Mark how he feels about daylight savings time? Well, you know, there no, there's, there's no, it, it, it's a serious issue. There are more accidents that you switch the clock from, you know, one hour advance or, or delay. And people's, people, there's a spike in accidents for about a week uh, going in both directions. Um, that's been shown several times. And, um, you know, losing an hour is not so bad, but it's it, it does take, um, I'll say, a week to recover your biological synchrony with the uh, sunrise and sunset. I think one of the interesting things, John, there was a study done in Germany about 10 years ago. And what they did is they had the same time zone and they looked at the time, uh, what they call mid-sleep. That's the marker. So they just asked them, say, when do you go to bed? When do you get up? And then they looked at the mid-sleep. And even if you're in the same time zone, the people on the east side are on average up before the people as you move across the west. So somebody in Boston, for example, compared to, say, South Bend, which is the same time zone, if you can extrapolate, and I'm pretty sure you can, uh, from Germany to the U.S., the people in Boston are getting up slightly earlier than the people in South Bend because they're so they're so tied to that sunrise sunset not to their watch uh but to to the sunrise sunset it's remarkable i think how how lacking we are in free will <laughs> when it comes to circadian rhythms it's uh... so it has applications in building host resistance or at least avoiding making plants more susceptible it has applications in post-harvest physiology that would reduce post-harvest losses and it provides a number of different let's say achilles heels that we could exploit in trying to make pathogens less destructive a number of different points in their uh daily activities that we can tweak uh by attacking them with light, absence of light, timing of light, and so on. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that um, that's a research project, but it does have, um, uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel of that research agenda, I think. No pun intended. No, no it was definitely <laughs> intended. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I did some work on UV light um, back in the, 90s. I tried uh, working with a retired engineer. He, he kind of had the idea that uh, he could use germicidal UV lamps 
to control one of the major grape diseases, which is grape powdery mildew. Everybody knows what powdery mildew is. They're this powdery fungi that grow on the surface of plants. If you have a lilac plant, you've seen it. Well, grapes get that too. And he, in his retirement, was going to be a grape grower. So we built this unit, loaded it up with germicidal UV lamps, and we tried it, and it actually worked. The problem was, it turned the grapes into little potatoes. They got all russeted, and it damaged the leaves. What did we do wrong? Well, I, you probably gave them too high of a dose. So you killed both the plant and uh, the powdery mildew. And right, and then when I end up years later on the the graduate committee of one of your students, and he wants to try UV light. And I, of course, tell him, I've tried it already, and it works, but uh, it's it's damaging to the plants. So I think you're wasting your time. And he went ahead and tried it anyway, but he tried something different that I hadn't anticipated. Well, he 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 didn't believe in you. <laughs> so, so, <laughs> what do professors know? <laughs> so um, he didn't want to listen to you, and uh, so he tried anyhow. And uh, I think what he did was he he, he lowered the dose, and um, he also used uh, a little bit different uh, part of the spectra of the UV than you used. That was uh, slightly less detrimental to the, to the plants. So that's there was that's one more fundamental difference, though. He tried it at night. I had never anticipated using the dose using UV at night. Now, why did that work better? Yeah, well, in the, in the beginning, he he didn't use it uh, during night, but he um, he uh, set up some experiments and he he did day treatments and he did night treatments, and then he saw that. Uh, it was much more effective if he did the treatment during uh, night. So uh, then he started wondering why why was it like this, and now um, yeah, to uh, to make the this uh, story short, uh, it was uh, because certain wavelengths of the light uh, repairs the damage that the UV. Uh, the lower wavelengths of UV does to the um, to the fungus. So that was uh, the reason. So blue light and uh, the UVA repairs the damage that you uh, get uh, on the powdery mildew using uh, UVC and UVB. Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Conviron is the world leader in controlled environment systems for plant science research. Convirin's reach-in plant growth chambers, walk-in rooms, and Argus control systems provide precise, uniform, and repeatable control of temperature, light, humidity, CO2, and other environmental conditions. Applications include plant growth, entomology, tissue culture, germination, and other research where tight environmental controls are required. 
Learn more at Conviron.com or contact us at info at Conviron.com. Now, back to the show. What damage does UV do to a microorganism? Well, it... Um, it uh, it, in, in, it, uh, the UV induces damage of uh, fungal DNA by uh, forming uh, these kind of bindings. So you you can't um, um, replicate and transcript the message that DNA gives. So you kind of block uh, the DNA uh, message. So you you don't get any um, uh, production of uh, new proteins so so the, the the life cycle of the of the pathogen just stops so the genetic code just can't be translated anymore everybody knows what abc means but if you stick all of the b's together there's no such letter no. as bb <laughs> yeah <laughs> and and so the fungi have an enzyme that fixes that but the enzyme requires blue light and it's, uh, the enzyme is called photolyase. So um, it's because it's affected by light. That's why it's called photo and then lyase. It's an enzyme. So um, by um, if, if you treat with your UVB or UVC, and at the same time you have a blue light or UVA, uh, then um, this they will kind of fix this damage so uh, the photolias that will, will fix the damage that you have done to the dna what are the next steps uh you've got a laboratory principle where you can control a powdery mildew uh, by applying uv light at night what's it take to get that into a, a commercial practice <laughs> yeah, a lot of work. <laughs> so, um, well, um, uh, you have to um, construct uh, machinery and equipment that uh, can work on on a commercial scale without damaging the plants. So, is this presently be- being done in Norway? Is it being used? Yeah. So. Um, there's uh, been a lot of trials um, experiments in Norway but also in other countries like um, Belgium in the US uh, in England um, and uh, there has been different kind of equipment um, in in the US uh, they've tried uh, using tractor drawn units with uh, with UV light and um, and but now there's also a couple of companies that have uh, built uh, robotic units that can um, run on GPS signals. Um, so you can um, just let them loose in the, the field during the nighttime, and uh, they will treat uh, the plants, and then they will get back to their station uh, in uh, a few hours before sunrise and then they will get charged and then uh, in a day or two they will run out again during night and so it goes that's the way it goes on 
what is the bottom line here uh, for, say, an agriculturist who needs to control a plant disease? And we're talking about the potential of light to play a role in, in suppressing a plant disease that has never before been exploited. What do they have to look forward to? In, in my judgment, we will see, right now, we're using UV systems to control, I'll say, controlled agriculture largely. Uh, but I, see, I foresee a day when uh, there will be tractors running UV out through the fields at night. Uh, and with GPS-assisted tractors, I think that uh, the robotics will take over and, and do the proper dosing. Um, and from an environmental perspective, I think that's really critical um, because you can do precise treatment with no residue and uh, you are going to actually um, not only kill the pathogen. Uh, and, and again, I don't want to say all pathogens, but the ones we've looked at, it's very effective uh, for powdery mildew. And it looks like you can do some prophylactic treatments for downy mildew. But there's a lot more research that has to be done before the proper dosing and application strategies are there. What are the exciting developments in lighting instruments uh, that allow us to do this better or approach this problem in ways that we just haven't thought about before? Well, at the top of everybody's lists have to be light emitting diodes. Um, the lighting industry literally has, uh, I'll say, been decimated by uh, a very cost-effective, very efficient light source. And I'm, by that, I mean in the visible region. But there's a lot of activity going on now to develop LEDs in the UV uh, region. And uh, they are going to provide, I, I think it'll be transformational in agriculture because you now have, instead of rigid four-foot tubes, you can actually uh, use other form factors to, say, get under the leaves to be able to um, apply the light in three dimensions rather than uh, a blanket, if you will, of UV on top. So I think this will become commonplace, uh, both for controlled agriculture and for, for fields. And in fact, we are working right now on a novel system that I think is going to particularly help um, treat uh, pathogens that try to be in the shade. So I think this is an exciting time. So right now, UV LEDs are, are frightfully expensive. How far away are we from affordable UV LEDs? Well, a lot closer than we estimated last year. With all the interest in treating uh, airborne viruses like COVID-19, uh, everybody's working hard to increase the efficiency of these LEDs. So right now, the efficiency is less than 1%, but it's not unreasonable to suppose by 2025, they'll perhaps be a 20% efficiency, in which case the cost will come way down, uh, the application cost. And again, having all those advantages of form factor, it, it, it will be transformational. What is it about a UV LED that makes it harder to produce than an LED that produces visible light? Well, the, um, the traditional ways that you're going to uh, dope, if you will, the, the term uh, to 
get light extracted from an LED um, actually self-destructs. So depending on the capsule that you're putting in, the ultraviolet is detrimental to the life of that. So they don't last very long. So they're working in material science right now to develop materials that, in fact, are um, not very sensitive to the UV radiation that it's actually um, producing. So producing UV is easy, but putting it into an encapsulated uh, device is really the challenge right now. Okay, David, you're obviously very knowledgeable about this topic. You've been working on it since the 90s, so I think maybe you better answer the rest of the questions. Why does UV light damage a pathogen more than it hurts a plant? Because most of the pathogens are are microbes. So they're single-celled, they have a cell wall, uh, but they're one cell thick. And in particular, those that are near the surface of the plant are readily accessible. Plants are multicellular. They're coated with a waxy cuticle. The wax can block UV. Uh, UV doesn't transmit very deeply, especially the shortwave UV. So the, the complex multicellular nature of a plant makes it much more tolerant of UV exposure, and it escapes a lot of the UV exposure because the UV doesn't penetrate very deeply into it. Uh, a single-celled microbe is much more susceptible. What about the organisms that you're not trying to kill with UV? Are they just innocent bystanders? Some are. Uh, it depends on their sensitivity. So, uh, of course, on the surface of a plant, there's a there's a community of organisms always, and there are members of that community that are being uh, stimulated or depressed by natural conditions all the time. So when we go over a plant with a high dose of UV, we naturally select out those pathogens that are uh, and microorganisms that are not pathogens. Those are selected out by their sensitivity to UV. But there's recolonization. We shouldn't think of a plant as something that has a static population that we affect. There are always new arrivals. So there's a rich uh, air spora that is redeposited on the plant, and these communities tend to rebound after treatment because the UV treatment lasts uh, only a few seconds. It changes, uh, but so far we haven't seen uh, harmful effects from uh, how we're altering the microbial populations on the leaf. Mark talked about how plant defense mechanisms are synchronized with the solar day. And he said that if you put the plant on jet lag, its defenses would be reduced. Is UV exposure at nighttime making it harder for plants to fight off pests? It is not, because UV occurs in a very short, um, an area of very short wavelengths. It's outside the range at which plants have photoreceptors. So there aren't UV, uh, shortwave UV receptors. So it's, it's neutral with respect to signaling. Mark said that exposure to UV not only can kill the pathogen, but it can also help develop resistance to future infection. How does that work? It's true. In certain plants, against certain pathogens, uh, Pre-infection exposure to UV light 
uh, seems to make the plants more resistant. And we really don't understand the mechanism by which that occurs or the degree of that uh, resistance, uh, whether it's it's almost immunity or whether it's, uh, say, a 50% increase. Uh, we've worked with pathogens called downy mildews on grapevine, uh, where we can get about a 50% reduction in uh, disease severity simply by exposing them to, uh, to UV the day before the infection occurs. That's crazy. So, it, I mean, is it possible that there's just like a very low level there that you're not noticing and you're killing that? Or is there something else going on? This is before the pathogen even arrives. So we're not killing the pathogen. We are wow. directly affecting the resistance of the plant. Now, for a number of pathogens, especially those that are what we call biotrophs, they're obligate parasites. They, they can only exist as parasites. Um, anytime you stress a plant, there's the potential that you could make it resistant simply by stressing it. So stress physiology is very closely tied sometimes to uh, the same biochemical pathways that cause resistance. So there's a chance that this is somehow tied in with stress, uh, that the UV exposure stresses the plants, and that's the means by which they become resistant. Now, the question is, is the stress itself harmful? And that's a question we haven't answered yet. What doesn't kill it makes it stronger. True. <laughs> David, if UV is so harmful to pretty much all life, how do we use it safely? Well, remember that the poison is in the dose. So it's a question of, uh, are we able to work safely around a dose that kills a pathogen? The other is that this is not yet really a do-it-yourself project. Uh, we're not suggesting that anyone go out and try to buy these lamps and use them uh, without access to expert knowledge. And that knowledge is, is readily available. Uh, there's a group uh, called the Light and Plant Health Group that can provide uh, advice on how to use this technology and use it safely. It generally involves building the UV array in such a way that the UV light doesn't escape the, the system. So it's totally enclosed. If it's a field unit, it's operating, it's mobile. Uh, it could be robotic or it could be tractor drawn, uh, but it's relatively safe uh, to the operators and bystanders. Uh, if these uh, lamps are used in a glass house, they can be set up with remote controls and of course they're operated in the middle of the night. So we generally just don't have people in the structures at the time the lights are on and they're only on for a few seconds. So the, the we know how to use this technology safely. Uh, we've been using UV technology in, uh, in uh, hospital settings and in microbiology labs, in food safety, and in water treatment, uh, water treatment as well. HVAC, uh, all, all kinds of things. And we've been doing that for 75 years. So we know how to use it safely. It's just a matter of knowing uh, how to use it safely. For more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at planttopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradeen, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karate. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia. Plantopia.